Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. By virtually every yardstick, anti-Semitism in the United States and Europe is rising and worsening in ways that we've not seen since the 1930s. It comes in the form of vandalism, social media abuse, assault, and murder. Like a virus, it mutates and evolves across cultures, borders, and ideologies, making it almost impossible to stop. Filmmaker Andrew Goldberg explores the infectious behavior in his film, Viral Antisemitism in Four Mutations, as he travels through four countries to speak firsthand with the victims, witnesses, anti-Semites, and the interviewees include Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Fareed Sakaria, George Will, and Deborah Lipstadt. And with that, I want to introduce to our audience the director of this terrific documentary called Viral Antisemitism in Four Mutations. Andrew Goldberg, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be on with you. Tell me a little bit about what prompted, what sort of was the impetus for you to do the documentary at this time? Well, you know, after the election, uh, when after Trump was elected, and, and, and I want to be very careful to not say because Trump was elected, I'm simply timing it to that period, uh, there was a definite uptick in anti-Semitic incidents. We saw cemeteries that were vandalized. Uh, there were reports coming in from different groups that there were an increased number of incidents being reported. There were, interestingly enough, a rash of bomb threats. Of course, those turned out to be bogus. But it really put the human rights community, the Jewish community, and, and certain elements of law enforcement on notice and some politicians to sort of say, what's going on around here? Uh, Jews are being uh, targeted. And so we set out to make this film right away. And, you know, not long after that, there was the March at Unite the, Unite the Right March rally in Charlottesville, where the marchers were carrying tiki torches and shouting, Jews will not replace us. And so we saw that this really was becoming a problem. We were already in production, and uh, we just continued and wrapped this up uh, in late 2019. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole in discussing Donald Trump and his relationship to anti-Semitism, but I do think it's it's an important thing to point out that in his election in 2016 during the campaign, he talked a lot about America first, and it was to my mind, a dog whistle to an era in American politics going back to the 1930s, Charles Lindbergh and others who were anti-Semitic, who supported Adolf Hitler. I know it sounds extreme the way I'm framing this question, but he was dog whistling to a certain segment of the American public stirring up these thoughts. Is that fair? I, I, I I will say this. If you imagine that Donald Trump ran on a campaign of um, that 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 encouraged people to hate uh, the English, it would not have gotten a lot of traction. the The reason that uh, that dog whistles work is because these ideas exist. They exist in a very very strong way. What the what what Trump did was tap into a lot of people's thinking. Uh, insofar as America first represented this old world. It was an old world that you might imagine of the 1950s of, you know, white people who look like they are and leave it to beaver smiling. Of course, that world never existed. African Americans were terribly mistreated and, and, and gay Americans, LGBTQ Americans were terribly mistreated. Okay. 
But what he did was he rallied an idea, and the idea was an old world, and in doing so, up came all the voices of racism. So it's important to not say that Trump caused this or Trump, Trump is why this is happening. Right. But his campaign and the momentum behind him encouraged those voices to come out, and they did. But it would be very dangerous to not assume that those would not have come out on their own. Right. You know, these, these ideas were percolating. There was an enormous rage against Obama. He was a black president. And uh, there's a wonderful writer uh, who said that the election of, of a white man is a kind of, a, of Trump was a kind of blacklash, not backlash, but blacklash against Obama by sort of white leadership, so to speak. And with that always comes anti-Semitism. Thank you for that answer. I, again, uh, I think that in my opinion, Trump has always been um, a political opportunist and the, his, his opportunism it goes back to the Central Park Five. It, whatever it is, it serves a purpose. It's just that uh, it's, it seemed to be something that um, he, he needs to be held accountable for. And, I, and that's part of what your film is about, is holding people accountable for these racist uh, um, views and, these, and, and, their, and not only just views, but their actions as well. So, well, I don't want to. I wouldn't want to compare Trump to Hitler. Trump doesn't seek to destroy a community or a race. But one thing that a leader can do is he can motivate people to levels that they're not, they would not ordinarily have gone to. It seems unlikely to me that that Germany would have led to the final solution, right, the extermination of European Jewry, uh, if it did not have someone like Hitler to pull it in that direction. So I do think that leaders can bring people to levels they would not ordinarily have gotten to. Um, and I think that there's a role that Trump has played in, in, in the use of specifically these dog whistles that has brought us to a place we might not have come to on our own. And so at that level, I don't want to take away his responsibility, his role, because he didn't just sort of encourage. He made it loud. You know, when you use certain words, people know who you're talking about. If a, if a politician, and I'm talking about Trump in this context, if a politician uses the word thugs, right, yeah. black people know he's talking about them. Um, right. Some white people know it and consciously do it, and other white people might be oblivious to it. But a black American is going to know when a leader says thug that it's a straight-up racist comment. Yeah. And phrases like globalist, which just permeated the the uh, the political discussion for some time really says, "Hey Jews, you know we we know you're there," uh, and I think that 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 is where you see leadership uh, uh, crossing a line that might not ordinarily have been crossed were that leader not to have have taken that the reins there. And I think that we've seen that not just with him, by the way, but with people all around him, Steve Bannon and the, and and the like. I just don't want to give them more credit than they deserve because I think that a lot of people have placed a little too much blame at their feet. Okay. Sorry to go on so long. No, no, that's uh, perfect. Thank you so much uh, for the frame because I want to move into the actual film itself, Viral Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations. And I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with the director of the film and that would be Andrew Goldberg. The uh, And also by virtue of, uh, let's let people know they can go to viralthefilm.com to find out more about the film, where it's screening, information about it, information about a lot of different things. So it's there, and it's also opening here in Los Angeles uh, this week, this Friday, at the Lemley Royal, the Lemley Town Center in Los Angeles. Both of those are in Los Angeles, as well as across the country, and that information is available at viralthefilm.com. So the film is divided up into four 
what you in the title for mutations. So, uh, how, what was it that uh, went into your thinking in terms of how you structured viral? Well, we we chose four mutations of anti-Semitism because we believe they were the most clear ways to frame what's going on in the world right now, and they were the right, the, the political right, the political left coming from the government down and coming from a, a community, an ethnic community, in particular, uh, people of Muslim origin in France. So on the far right, we looked at the United States, um, and in particular, we follow a, uh, a man who's running for office, who's a very far right wing guy, and I'll let viewers uh, see him on their own. Um, and we talked about how the right is gaining traction in the U.S. Then we went to England, where we looked at how anti-Semitism exists on the far left. And there what you have is people who claim they're very upset with uh, the, the behavior of the state of Israel, which they may or may not have any right to be, that's a, that's a different argument, but who then use that anger or concern or, or a, a political feeling and, and turn it into a form of mistreatment of Jews with whom they live in, the, in, in their local communities. And so this is, you know, it's, if you were to imagine someone being really mad at an African country and then mistreating black people, it, it, it would be that there's a total disconnect between the two. But what ends up is that the Jews end up paying the price on the ground. So that happens in England on the left. Then we went to Hungary, where there's anti-Semitism really coming from the government down. Uh, one of the most visible examples was an enormous campaign they launched against George Soros, basically saying that George Soros was the reason that immigrants and, and refugees were being brought to Europe and that George Soros was secretly behind bringing all these refugees. These were Middle Eastern refugees running from things such as the war in Syria, bringing them in, and that it was this Jew, this evil Jew, George Soros, who was behind it all, which is an old-school trope that Jews are behind the scenes to hurt the non-Jews. Interestingly enough, you know, George Soros isn't a particularly uh, active member of the Jewish community. He's not particularly pro-Israel or, or in any way things that one might associate that. But he was still vilified, and there was graffiti all over the country about what a dirty Jew he is. And then finally, we went to France, where we looked at how people of Muslim origin, primarily of, from North Africa, uh, a small number of them, but, a num but some of them nonetheless, have committed terribly violent acts against Jews, including vandalism, assault, and quite a few murders. So those are the four areas. I think that every one of them deserves a movie of its own. Uh, in that regard, that's probably a shortcoming of a film like this, is that we just don't have enough time, because it could have been not... First of all, it, it could have been not four mutations, but 400, and it could have been, you know, two hours on each one or longer. Right. Uh, but we did our best. Right. And in in the beginning of the film, you kind of walk the, the viewer through the historic kind of uh, racist racism directed at Jews, sort of origin stories about some of the things that are, as you mentioned, are still being sort of the uh, the front line uh, verbiage that is used against uh, Jews. All There are all kinds of things. And I want to just talk very briefly about one of them, because it seems, at least for me, in the West or, you know, sort of in, when I first started hearing about anti-Semitism or hearing anti-Semitic um, sentiment, there was often a reference to a, a book uh, about the uh, the elders of Zion. Yeah, would you mind just sort of giving us kind of an historic context for, for where that sure. came from and why that seems to be kind of, if you will, a Rosetta Stone of anti-Semitic uh, behavior and um, inactions? So the protocols of the elders of Zion, or the protocols of the wise men of Zion, or the protocols of the learned men of Zion, a little unclear where it was written. It was probably written in France by a, a Russian 
uh, or maybe it wasn't. But the idea is that this is a book that was written, I guess it was written in the late 1800s, which presented this idea that there was a group of Jews, uh, a cabal, that's one of the words that's another dog whistle when people say there's a cabal, um, and that this group of Jews is secretly planning to control the world. And they have a whole list of things. I haven't read the book in a few years, but you can easily find the list of all the things that they think that, you know, that the Jews, that this group of Jews had planned to do to take over the world and control the world. Okay, so this is written in the late 1800s. This comes on the, I don't want to say the heels of, but at the end of centuries of anti-Semitic ideas that populated Europe from certainly not too long after, after Christianity begins, but really pick up steam uh, such that in the uh, 1100s in England, there's a claim that the Jews are working behind the scenes in a little village and that they've taken a boy, killed this boy, and used the blood of his body to make a, a Jewish form of a bread called, called matzah. Oh my which God. is an which is an absurdity. Oh is, is, I think his name was Earl or something of Norwich. You can look the story up. But um, this idea permeates Europe. The Jews are behind the scenes. The Jews are the evil ones, and it comes from you know biblical interpretation that the Jews were behind the killing of Jesus. Never mind that Jesus needed to die, according to the Christian Bible and according to the whole creation of, of, of Christianity. But nonetheless, the Jews are the ones who are once again behind the scenes. It's this conspiracy theory. And so you can accelerate that all the way to the 1800s when this book is written. This book becomes a bestseller, so to speak. I don't know if bestseller is the right way to describe it, and I don't think we really had ways to count how books were sold. But it becomes, at that time, in that place. But it becomes extremely popular in Russia and later in Europe and around the world, such that in the 1930s, Henry Ford, the American, uh, you know, the the creator of the Ford Motor Company, created a book, uh, was, was writing a, a sort of a, a newspaper about Jews, about how Jews were bad, and he helped distribute half a million copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in, in portions through his publications uh, throughout the United States. If you imagine a CEO of a company now distributing half a million copies of a book about the problem of you know, African Americans or the problem of Jews or LGBTQ Americans distributing it, it would be a nightmare. It would be, I don't even know what you would call it. And yet here this happened in the 1930s. And, you know, because anti-Semitism was not something that is so criticized in the way it is now, uh, a lot of people took to it. And that book has never gone away. You can buy it on Amazon. There have been movies made about it. There have been movies made against it. And there have been movies made as if it were true. In the Middle East, there's a movie that basically shows this group of Jews and their plot to destroy the world. And I've seen it, and I quoted it in another movie. It's quite a chilling moment. Well, Andrew Goldberg, isn't it one of the perverse, quote-unquote, justifications that that is that it's central to anti-Semitism, which is this sort of the unknown that this you mentioned this cabal in secret. We don't know the invisible hand. I think that's also. Am I correct? Is that sort of another uh, uh, anti-Semitic trope? The invisible invisible hand of the, you know, fill in the blank. That sort of feels like something. So it's something that is nebulous, but still seems could be real. And that they, they be able, and to be able to kind of capitalize on people's fear of the unknown, fear of what they don't know, what they you know, all those kinds of things is is that part of the allure? Is that part of yes. the sort of what, what we're well, talking about? Absolutely. So I interviewed a guy years ago who 
uh, had studied uh, under a professor named Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis was a Jewish professor. Uh, he died uh, about five years ago. I interviewed him as well. So I interviewed this guy, and this guy, I interviewed him in Damascus, Syria. He had, um, he had been an advisor to a television series, which had been quite anti-Semitic. And he, I said to him, is there a secret group of Jews, a secret government? And he said, of course there is. That's why I said so for the movie. There, and this is a guy, I think he had a Ph.D. from Princeton, okay, or certainly a master's. And, and he said to me that there is a secret group of Jews that work behind the scenes, and he has proof. I said, well, what is your proof? He said, when I was studying under Bernard Lewis at Princeton, Bernard had a, uh, a paper of mine, and when he returned the paper to me, he didn't realize that he'd put an index card in there with a note that he wanted to send my paper to a man named Green. Okay. I said, what are you talking? What is that proof? He says, well, Green is obviously a Jew, and he's obviously part of this secret government, this secret, not government, this secret world of Jews that work behind the scenes, and he knows I'm this Muslim from Syria, and so Bernard Lewis, this Jewish professor, is mailing my papers to some Jew. Why is he doing that? It proves that these Jews are working behind the scenes. Now, I thought this was the most absurd thing in the world. I should have called up Bernard Lewis and asked him. I never did, uh, if he knew anybody named Green. But these ideas run deep. They, they run especially deep in the Middle East, by the way, and if you can't explain things with a conspiracy theory in the Middle East, you're going to have a, a, another level of explanation, because this is a very common way that things are framed. And that is a very anti-Semitic uh, uh, way of sort of viewing the world and interpreting the world. And it's something that permeated Europe for many, many years and still in many ways does. And obviously, it does here, too, yeah. as we've seen now with the violent acts against Jews. And it also makes it something that's impossible to disprove. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's magic, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's just, that is, again, I, any of these racisms, uh, isms that we, we, we could talk about, m almost all of them have the element of their, the unseen hand, the unseen, the demonic possession, the whatever it might be, something that's beyond our ability to control. Therefore, it is you know, it is evil. It is whatever you can construe it to 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 be in your own twisted, you know, interpretations of life. But I, I think that anti-Semitic. Listen, every every bigotry is different and unique, and and I don't want to say special, but I'll just say special in its own way. Right. There's there's something if you talk to racists about African Americans, or if you talk to homophobes about LGBTQ Americans, or any number of these people, they they, they often describe them in very hateful terms. You know, they don't like black people, therefore they want to harm them. With Jews, it's slightly different, because with Jews, very often what you hear is they want to stop them, right? So the Pittsburgh shooter who shot up the Tree of Life synagogue, he said, I can't stand by while Hyas, which is a Jewish organization, right, a very Jewish organization, brings immigrants into this country to slaughter my people, as if as if this Jew, you know, highest does resettle immigrants, but they're very small, and I don't know, they're tiny, but they're, they don't do, they're not settling millions of people. And so he went into a synagogue and he shot a bunch of Jews because uh, he wanted to stop them. He wanted to stop Hayes from bringing Jews into the country. They want to stop George Soros. Where there's a chant, chanting in my movie right. that George Soros should go home, go home. The Jew needs to be stopped because the Jew is malicious, because the Jew wants to harm the non-Jew. So that's a slightly different framing. And Hitler blamed the Jews for the problems of Germany. These problems were caused by the Jews. Therefore, we, they, they all need to die. Right. Kind of a bizarre twist of logic.
I don't know that, that there's that the mystery that you're talking about is it of course it exists in all these people, you know, that, that there's the, a racism for each one of these, but it's particularly pronounced with Jews. And that's a that's a historical trope that may may never go away. Well, in Charlottesville, the the protesters were chanting we will not be replaced. Right. And so that goes back to what some of these things. Well, it's it the film the film again, let me just remind our listeners we're talking with the writer producer and director of the film Viral Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations, it lays it out, and it lays it out very well, very um, uh, informative and engaging, uh, and you have great people to uh, in the film to talk about what we're talking about here. Bill Clinton's um, in, in the film, Tony Blair, George Will, we mentioned Deborah Lipstadt and Farid Sakaria and a lot of other people, people who have lived through the experience of being shot at or being persecuted or whatever it might be because of anti-Semitism. So the film covers a, a lot of ground and it's very well done. And my congratulations uh, to you on the film. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, very much so. Well, just uh, in closing, once again, to let people know that they can find out uh, all they would um, probably need to know about where to see the film by going to viralthefilm.com. There's there's information there about the film screenings, the cast, and, and other, other information. Film Viral, Anti-Semitism and Four Mutations, as I mentioned, it's opening here in Los Angeles uh, at the Lemley Royal, right there, right off the 405 freeway, Santa Monica Boulevard, the Lemley Town Center, uh, as well as in Ontario and San Francisco and in Apple Valley this coming Friday, and it will be rolling out from there across the, the country. So keep an eye on it, and uh, thank you, Andrew Goldberg, so much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.